Hey, uh, good evening, Summit. Uh, like Melissa said, my name's Pete T, and uh, I'm on staff here. And, and as she mentioned, man, normally uh, I'm up here kind of shepherding and leading you guys in worship. Uh, I'm, I'm the guy who's normally up here singing, and tonight you get the privilege of hearing me talk. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's actually my privilege, really, to just open up God's word with you tonight. And I'm really excited to be able to do that. I'm just excited really to be able to share with you as we open God's word together um, just what he's been teaching me and pressing upon me as I've been uh, just studying his word. And so also, like Melissa mentioned, um, just over the past couple weeks, we've been taking a break from our study in the gospel of Mark so that we can recall as a church like what it is that we are called to, like what, what is the mission of God and, and, and what is he seeking to do through his church and just to be kind of clear from the outset as we are turning to Acts chapter 1, um, this passage basically tells us that our fundamental call, our fundamental task as those who claim to follow Jesus is to be witnesses of him. Like what we are called to be as the church is witnesses and people who point others to the truth of who God is and what he has done in the person of Jesus and in the gospel. And we have the privilege and joy of being witnesses of that to the ends of the earth. But maybe, um, maybe you're here tonight, and, and I don't know everyone in this room, maybe you're here tonight and you're not really uh, familiar with church. Um, I don't know if you're here maybe because like a neighbor or a coworker like invited you here and uh, I don't know how you respond to that either. Like maybe that kind of annoys you or maybe that's kind of frustrating to you. Like when Christians proselytize their faith or try and impose their beliefs on others and so you're kind of here out of reluctance. Uh, and I would just say like I, I understand that. I get that. I've actually felt that uh, before. But man, as we spend time together tonight uh, in God's word, I would maybe just ask the question, um, if that's you and you're here tonight, like, why would that be the case? Like, what would drive, what would motivate someone to want to go to that extent? What would push a Christian to want to tell you about who Jesus is or to invite you to church to hear about Jesus? Or, or maybe if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, chances are you've, you've heard that you should witness. Chances are you've been told, like, you should be a witness, you know, like you need to tell others about your faith. You need to tell others about Jesus. This is something that you should be doing. But I'd also be willing to bet that many of us uh, in this room, and if we took the time to sort of reflect back on our life, I feel like um, many of us in this room would probably have a really difficult time, like actually coming up with the last time or recalling the last time that we actually explicitly like shared our faith with someone. Like we long for, we desire to be witnesses. We long to be like joyful, fruitful, and faithful in our witness of Jesus. But if we reflect on our lives, like oftentimes we realize that it's like woefully lacking. And as I was considering just our time together over this past week, it kind of reminded me of my experience in going to the dentist. Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, like, when I go to the dentist, sorry for any of you who are dentists or who may be a dental hygienist out there, but like, it's not a very pleasant experience for me. I don't really enjoy it. I don't look forward to it. It still kind of scares me to go to the dentist, uh, but I go anyway, and so you're there. You're like sitting in the chair, and there's this massively bright light kind of like these shining down on your face, 
and there's tools in your mouth, and finally it gets to that dreaded point in the conversation where the dentist asks you, have you been flossing? (laughs) You're kind of thinking in your head because you can't really talk because there's hands and tools in your mouth, Uh, but you're thinking in your head like, is that really a serious question? (laughs) Like, uh, maybe... uh, you didn't notice, but my gums are kind of bleeding out right now. And you want to preserve yourself and defend yourself at first, and then you realize, like, the evidence is there uh, for the taking. Like, your gums are hurting. They, t- they can tell that you haven't brushed your teeth every day. And, and uh, as any good dentist would or should do, uh, she goes on to tell you, like, man, you need to be flossing. Here's how often you should be flossing. Here's what's going to happen if you don't floss. And I don't know about you, but for me, like, when I leave a dentist appointment, I'm always super inspired. I'm like, this is going to be it. This is finally the day that I'm going to start caring for my teeth. I'm going to start flossing after every meal. I'm going to start brushing my teeth every day. And uh, in fact, like one time I was so inspired after a dentist appointment, I went out and bought one of those water picks, um, like an electric water flosser. I was like so motivated I was going to use that. And sadly, like I get back and that inspiration is so momentary. It lasts maybe a day, maybe a week. I think I used that water pick maybe two times in four years. <laughs> and, I just want to tell you and be honest with you from the very get-go, that is not my desire tonight. Like My desire is to not come into this place and sort of give you a rousing speech or kind of give an inspiring sermon where you walk away and you have this momentary inspiration to go and be witnesses for Jesus and, and give you all these implications of what will happen if you don't. And, and here's how often, here's a three-step plan to how you can engage faithfully in witness. No, like we need something so much more fundamental and foundational than that. And so as we look at the text, Acts chapter 1, particularly focusing on verse 8 What we're going to see is sort of the foundational motivations that ought to drive our witness. And and then we're going to see the divine empowerment that actually accomplishes our witness. So that's sort of what we're dealing with in our time together. The the foundational motivations that drive our witness and and the divine empowerment that accomplishes our witness. So as we look at verse 8, this first uh, point that we'll be looking at is the priority in our witness. Here's what the text says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, when I mentioned before that the fundamental task of the church is to be his witnesses, I didn't just make that up. That's actually a mission that has been given to us by God, that's been given to us from Jesus. And the reason that these words right here are so important is because they're some of the final words of Jesus. Like this book of Acts, um, the author of this book, his name is Luke, and he wrote the gospel according to Luke. And like verse 1 of Acts said, um, in the gospel of Luke, he recorded everything that Jesus began to do and teach. And now in this book, he's going to record everything that Jesus continues to do and to teach through his spirit and among the church. And so these are the final words of Jesus. His public ministry has happened. He's lived among them. He's died like he's already been crucified. He's resurrected. And now he's speaking to his first followers and he's saying, here in a nutshell, here encapsulates sort of what you are to be about as my people. And he says, you are to be my witnesses. You're to be my witnesses. 
And if we kind of look at that word witness in the Greek, which is actually what the New Testament was predominantly written in, um, in the Greek, the word for witness is the Greek word martus. The Greek word martus. And I don't know if you can hear it, but it's actually where we get our English word for martyr. Uh, so maybe kind of what's immediately springing up in your mind are sort of visions of Christians getting their heads chopped off and thrown into the, to, to the gladiatorial rings uh, or, or being burned at the stake for standing up for their faith and for not renouncing Jesus in the midst of opposition. But actually, um, this word martyr in the Greek, it actually originally was simply meaning to witness, to testify, to be a testimony of, or to give testimony of. And so Jesus is here. He's speaking to his first followers, and he's saying, you are my witnesses, right? Like, these are the dudes who who were with Jesus. They had actually tasted and seen of the supreme value and the supreme worth of Jesus, like, firsthand. They were there with him. They had eaten fish with him. They had... They were there when the Holy Spirit fell upon him at the Jordan. They were there when he taught the sermon on the mountainside. Like they were there with him throughout his life and his ministry. And they had seen his worth and his value. They had felt the weight of it when he was crucified and put on that cross for their sins. And and they felt that jubilation and joy in these moments when they were able to actually touch uh, his scars and his wounds after his resurrection. Like these are the dudes who had tasted and seen of the supreme worth and value of Jesus firsthand. And so Jesus says, you are my witnesses. And actually, I think we get a really good glimpse of this. You don't have to turn there with me. But the parallel account, like this, the, the account of this same scene that Luke records in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24, uh, just gives a little bit more detail that I wanted to kind of highlight as we look at this first point. It says in verse 46, uh, Jesus says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. And then he led them out, and lifting his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and carried and was carried up into heaven. And this is what I want for us to notice, what they do right here in response to this. Verse 52 says, and they worshiped him. And they returned to Jerusalem full of joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. See, I wanted to look at that account because what it highlights is the fact that the disciples, before they ever engaged in the activity of witness, they worshiped. For these first followers of Jesus who had tasted and seen of the value of Jesus, that he alone accomplishes salvation, that he brings forgiveness of sins, like they saw that, they beheld that, and they worshiped. Their worship preceded their witness. And so I just want to kind of get really practical for just one second. Um, I think oftentimes a reason that we lack joy-filled, fruitful, faithful witness, like we desire that, right? We desire to be faithful and fruitful and consistent in our witness, and yet we see that lacking so often, or we see it driven by guilt or out of a sense of duty and obligation, and I think the reason that that happens is because we are so quick to move to the activity of witnessing, saying, oh, I know I should do this, so I'm going to just do it, instead of first stopping Beholding Jesus, tasting and seeing that he is good, 
and worshiping. And so that's why I say then the priority in our witness is our worship. The priority in our witness is our worship. And maybe when I say that, it maybe potentially seems a little bit intangible to you. So I kind of just want to unpack that idea a little bit. Um, When I say the word worship, maybe for a lot of you, immediately sort of that has a connotation of maybe an outward spiritual activity. So what you think about is like people going to a temple to pray or someone singing a worship song or of even doing like what we're doing right here, right now, where we gather together for a church service. Like a lot of us in our minds, like we've limited worship to kind of just be an outward spiritual activity. But what the Bible tells us is that actually doesn't go far enough. That's not foundational enough in our understanding of what worship is. And so I'm not talking about an outward physical activity. No, worship is, before it's an activity that we do, is an identity, uh, who we are. The Bible says um, that we were all created to worship. Whether you followed Jesus tonight, whether you're here in this room and you claim to follow Jesus or not, like you worship. And so the difference between people is not as many in our culture would want to say like worshiper versus non-worshiper. The difference between people in life is the object or the content of their worship. Romans 1 kind of puts it this way as it speaks to um, sort of describing those who reject God, which really is every single one of us apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Romans 1 describes that state as a person. It says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And notice, they worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator. Louis Giglio, um, he's a pastor and sort of a well-known conference speaker. I don't know if you're familiar with the Passion Conferences, but he's one of the dudes who founded those conferences. And so um, he speaks to this biblical notion of worship a little bit. He says, he says this, it should be on the screen. Worship is what you are made for. You are a worshiper. Every day, all day long, everywhere you go, you worship. It's what you do. It's who you are. Maybe think of it this way. Worship is simply about value. The simplest definition I can give is this. Worship is our response to what we value most. Worship is that thing we all do. It's what we're all about on any given day. Because worship is about saying, this person, this thing, this experience, this whatever is what matters most to me. It's the thing I put first and value most in my life. And friends, that's crazy because it means that the result of sin, the result of sin being in the world and and of our rebellion is not that we cease to worship. No, the result of our sin is actually that our worship is misdirected and ultimately that our worship is misdirected to lesser things that could never satisfy us. See See, what Romans 1 says is that at any given moment, we are either worshiping the things that God has made or we are worshiping the God who made us. And what the Bible reveals and shows us over and over and over again is that God made us to be in relationship and fellowship with him. And that only in delighting in that fellowship will we then be accomplishing the purpose for what we uh, were made for, which is namely to worship and live in fellowship with God. Maybe kind of just to maybe drive it home a little bit more or or to make it a little bit more personal, uh, there's a series of questions that I often like to ask myself as I'm sort of just considering like where are my affections, where are my desires, like what is it that I treasure, that I value, that I 
place as ultimate in my life? What is it that I worship? And these are just some questions that I would maybe pose to you. I try and reflect on these pretty often to get to the heart of what it is that I worship. I would just ask, like, what would be the one thing in this world that if you could have that, you would feel fulfilled or happy? Or maybe the reverse of that. Like, what is the one thing in this world that if it was stripped from you or taken from you, that it would cause you to feel like worth was no lo- life was no longer worth living? Or maybe just another way to put it would be, if I could just have this, then I would be fulfilled, happy, feel like I have meaning. Whatever it is that we put in that blank, friends, is, is, is what it is that we place as ultimate in our lives. And so this is why I say that the priority in our witness is our worship. Because in worship, through the gospel, we are restored for what we were originally intended for. Through the gospel of Jesus where he comes and he lives perfectly and he shows us who God is and where he dies in our place and he dies to pay for our sin and where he resurrects to conquer the powers of sin, Satan, death, darkness. It's only through that that we can be restored to fellowship with our maker and be restored to what we were made to do, which is to worship, to delight ourselves in the God who made us. And so worship is so crucial to our witness. Because it's in worship that we place God to his rightful position as the most supremely beautiful and glorious and amazing and all-surpassing worthy reality in the face of this planet. Like nothing else compares to his beauty and his worth. And so you can see then that, that if, if we come to that place where we treasure God as, as all-surpassing all surpassingly worthy. Like if we come to that place, then that would naturally lead us to a place then of witness where we want to just tell others about that. And as I've been thinking about it this past week, I was thinking about how we do this really in small ways all the time. I don't know, maybe for you, I I don't know if any of you have been able to get out for a movie this past summer. Uh, Maybe you went out and saw Jurassic World or maybe uh, just some other blockbuster uh, from this past summer, but uh, I don't know about you. My wife says it's probably because I'm just a proselytizer by nature. But for me, when I watch a really good movie, I'm like, dude, I got to tell someone about this. Like, did you see that scene where this or that or the other happened? Did you see how they developed out that storyline? Or did you see, like, when this happened, like, you've got to go watch that movie. In fact, I will go watch that movie with you. Like, it was so good. And maybe for you, it's not a movie. Maybe for you, it's music. Like you love to find and discover like new artists. You're like, no one's heard of this band before. You gotta go hear this band. They're so awesome. They're so good. You know, or or maybe for you, it's not music. It's food. (laughs) Like you taste some really good food and you're just like, dude, you guys have to go check out that restaurant Take your wife there, take your girlfriend there, take your friends there. It's amazing. Like we do this on small levels all the time where when we taste something, when we're confronted by beauty, we just want to naturally tell people about that. And in the same way, when we look at this, the reason I say that the priority of our witness is our worship is because if we want to worship, not out of a sense of duty, not out of a sense of obligation, not out of a sense of guilt, but out of joy and delight, the only lasting motivator, then we have to first 
worship. We have to first treasure the God of the gospel. But not only that, man, if, 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 if God really is who he says he is, if, if Jesus Christ, whom he sent, is the only means of salvation, then this naturally has implications that are so much more far-reaching than just you or me as individuals. Like if, if God is the only one who can satisfy our longings for worship and our cravings in this life, if God is the only one who can restore us as human beings, who can, who can save us from the sin and the brokenness that plagues our hearts and that plagues our families, our relationships, our society in this world, then, then, then that has implications that go far beyond just you and me individually. That actually then has cosmic and global implications because it is only in this God that the peoples, all the peoples of the earth can come to find restoration and salvation. And so that moves us to our second point, the parameter or the scope or extent of our worship. And this is why Jesus says here, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He doesn't just stop at Jerusalem. Our worship, our witness, it wasn't meant to just kind of remain in our circles for us to kind of go tell our buddies about how great this is. No, it was meant to move out in ever-expanding concentric circles until the glory of God fills the earth. To Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And what I want to just do kind of over the next couple minutes is I would just like to show you that that is actually always been the intention of God. Like God's purpose, his working in history, his intention has always been to fill the earth with his glory. He, he has always desired to be in fellowship, to see people created to delight themselves in fellowship with the God who made them and then to spread that throughout the earth. And so I'm just want to go from Genesis to Revelation like really quick. You don't have to turn there with me, but I just want to show you like pretty briefly how this has always been God's heart and his desire. See, in Genesis 1, when God creates human beings, in the very beginning, Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says, I make you in my image. You're meant to be in fellowship with me. Now be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Do you see that same language, like fill the earth to the ends of the earth? God's intention from the very beginning when he creates human beings is that they would be fruitful and multiply his glory throughout all the earth. But then we see that as the story kind of unfolds, like in Genesis 3, we have recorded that like sin enters the world as our first parents, the first humans actually rejected the purposes and the character of God and decided to go about their own ways. And as a result, like sin enters the world and sin and death then spread throughout. But God says, I'm not going to scrap my plan to make my glory fill the earth and to be in fellowship with people. He actually promises as early as Genesis 3.15, like I will crush the head of the snake. I will crush your greatest enemies of sin and of Satan. And then the Old Testament is just a story, this, this narrative of how God is going about that. And so we see then as the story continues, like Genesis 12, God chooses a guy by the name of Abraham. And he says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you so that the, with the purpose of being a blessing, so that you will be a blessing. And then he says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed 
There's that language again. In you, all the families, all the peoples, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is the call of Abraham. This is the call of the nation that comes from him, Israel. God says, I'm going to make my love known to you as a people so that I can make myself known to the ends of the earth. And I'm going to use you to do that, speaking to Israel. But what we see time and time again throughout the Old Testament is that Israel fails in that regard. They continue to be unfaithful to the promises of God. But God says, I'm going to remain faithful despite your unfaithfulness. And he says, I am not going to give up on my purposes to bless the ends of the earth through you. And so we see this intention throughout sort of uh, all, all of the prophets. Isaiah 49 declares, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 66 says, the time is coming together, all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. Or Ezekiel 36, that says, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, and the nations will know that I am the Lord. Or maybe Joel 2, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this is why the psalmist can say in Psalm 67, let your way be known on the earth, your saving power among all the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let, the, let all the peoples praise you. You see, all of these Old Testament passages, and there are myriads more. There are so many more that speak. The whole Old Testament is littered with passages that point to God's heart to fill the earth with his glory. That's what these, these passages all throughout the Old Testament anticipate. A time when God's glory would not just be known among a particular nation of Israel, but that it would spread to all the nations of the earth. And ultimately, what we believe is that it anticipates the chosen one of God, the person of Jesus Christ. All of these passages are looking forward to this one man who would come and be God in the flesh, God among us. The one uh, man who would reveal who God is and who would bring about salvation, not just for the house of Israel, but for all the peoples of the earth. It is in Jesus that the nations will stream. It is Jesus that the nations will stream to and come to, to worship and to see who is God. What is he like? How is his salvation accomplished? How do we receive forgiveness? Like we find that in the person of Jesus. And the beautiful thing is then we see that God is at work in history and nothing will thwart these purposes. And I know that because the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, gives us a picture of what we have to look forward to. In Revelation 7, the apostle John gives us a glimpse. He says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. These belong to our God forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Friends, this is a glimpse. This is a window into what we have to look forward to. God's heart is for the nations. He's gathering the nations to himself because ultimately it is only in him that joy and satisfaction, happiness, fulfillment can be found. It's only in him And so it means that his gospel, his salvation is to be proclaimed, not just in our circles, but to the ends of the earth so that the nations can come and make themselves glad in relationship with God. So we don't just bid ourselves to come and worship. We bid the nations to come and worship the one true God who's made himself known in Jesus Christ. John Piper, he's a... If you're not familiar with him, he's a pastor, a theologian who honestly has just kind of mentored me from afar, not personally, but as I've read his book, I, I wanted to sound cool for a second. Um, but through reading his books and listening to his sermons, and he says, he says this, God is pursuing with omnipotent passion a worldwide purpose of gathering joyful worshipers for himself from every tribe, tongue, people, nation. He has an inexhaustible enthusiasm for the supremacy of his name among the nations. Therefore, let us bring our affections into line with his. And for the sake of his name, let us renounce the quest for worldly comforts and join his global purpose. And I would maybe just, I got to take a break for a second. Maybe just give you a breather for a second too. I don't know if what I've just kind of talked about is um, familiar to you. I don't know if that's a foreign concept to you, if you've heard that before. But I know that for me, like Piper says here, God has an inexhaustible enthusiasm for his glory among the nations. And if I'm honest with you tonight, like when I reflect on my life, I, I way more often than not do not have an inexhaustible or even very much of an enthusiasm at all for the glory of God among the nations. It's been a struggle for me ever since I started following Jesus. I've been following him for about six or seven years. And when I started following him, I, I, really early on, I met a girl named Rachel. Um, and by the grace of God, she has become my wife. And when we first met, man, she just had this raw, like, joy and enthusiasm. She wanted to tell people about Jesus. She, she spent so much time, like, months in over, like, overseas and, and just proclaiming the gospel to other nations. And I remember just having conversations with her, even as we began dating. We would have conversations that really would turn sort of into arguments, like, about this. Because when I would look at her and see her desire for the nations and her heart for the gospel among the nations, like, it was just lacking in my life. And so I would get frustrated with her. I would get annoyed. And it would just kind of like rub me the wrong way. And I was kind of callous towards like overseas anything. Um, and, and eventually, like as we talked, eventually I kind of became open like, yeah, sure. Like I'll have like God's heart for the nations as long as like he sends me to New Zealand. Like, 
Or, or if he sends me to Hawaii, like I'll, I'll preach the gospel in Hawaii. That'd be awesome. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of just kidding. But honestly, like I'm really thankful for how God has worked over the years um, and, and just showing me like things like what I just shared with you tonight about his heart for the nations. But if I'm honest with you, it still remains a struggle for me. Like I don't like often have a, a, an enthusiasm for God's glory among the nations that doesn't burden me. And maybe you're here tonight and, and you're feeling the same thing. Like as I talk, you're like, whoa, that's foreign. I've never heard that before. Or you're like, whoa, like I do not have a desire for that. That is not on my radar. I can barely have a concern for people outside of myself, let alone like the nations of the earth. And I, I would just be honest about that one, but two, I would also say like I love this passage because what it does is it pushes us, I think, to actually feel the weight of that. I think that tonight, it would actually be a really good place for you to come. And, and as you've heard me talk about treasuring and, and upholding God as the most supremely valuable reality on the face of this earth, like, if you're honest with yourself, if that's not where you're at, that's not something that you can just kind of pull up your bootstraps and accomplish in your life. You can't just propel your heart to treasure the gospel. You can't just propel your heart to desire the glory of God among the nations. And so I think we're meant to feel the weight of this. And so I just kind of want to end there as this passage points us to, to see both the foundational motivations that drive our witness and just the next like three minutes I want to close our time by pointing you to the power behind our witness. This passage is meant to, to let us feel a weight like, I can't treasure the gospel of Jesus on my own. I can't have a heart for God's glory among the nations on my own. Like, are you kidding me? We're called to the task to be witnesses of Jesus Christ, like not just in our own culture, but transcending cultural barriers and racial uh, divisions and, and languages and all these things. There's so many complications that come with it. That seems like an impossible task. Like the gospel is supposed to go to the ends of the earth. And this passage is meant to push us to realize that it is impossible. It's impossible on our own. Like we can never come and do that on our own. And that's why I would just say like, look at the text one last time. It says, you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I want you to hear that promise and maybe just receive that promise right now. Like you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then he says, it is a guarantee. You will be my witnesses. If you have my spirit, you will be my witnesses. But apart from the Holy Spirit, we can never accomplish that on our own. And so what I want to just do is like bid us to come and realize like we can't do this on our own. Like the task is too important. The task is too impossible. It's too demanding on our own. And so we need a power beyond ourselves to come and to fall upon us. We need for the Holy Spirit to come, like we sang earlier, for us to be more aware of his presence, for us to be more aware of the glory of his goodness. And that's something that only the Holy Spirit can accomplish. And so I just want to bid you, as you think about the task of witness, that you are fundamentally called to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. 
And as you think about then the priority of that witness being your worship, upholding and treasuring the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most supremely beautiful reality on the face of this planet that nothing else can touch that. And as you think then about that having implications to the ends of the earth, that it would push us and drive us to our knees to beg, Holy Spirit, fall upon us. And I would just also challenge us. Like if, if we're able to just go about our lives, wake up in the morning and sort of go about business as usual, go to work, watch television shows or whatever it is that we do, like if we can go about those things without seeking the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, without falling on our knees in prayer to, to receive his empowerment, then I would question whether or not I'm even engaged in the mission of God. But I would also just point you to the hope that comes in this passage that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Where there is fullness of spirit power, there will be boldness in gospel proclamation. And so would we just be a church that the spirit marks us and makes himself known among us as a community because the primary mark of the Holy Spirit being among us is that we will engage and faithfully and joyfully and fruitfully engage as witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. And so as we just close, as I close our time together, I don't want to just like pray because it's a way to close our time together. I want to pray for us as a church that the Holy Spirit really would mark us and fall upon us, that we would seek his empowerment, that he would cause us to treasure the gospel of Jesus, and that that would be declared among the nation. Let's, the nations, let's pray together. God, I just appreciate this time that we can come together tonight. I want to be really honest with you and with these people here I don't want to come and act like I have all of my junk together, but I want to come and confess that I uh, need a Savior. I need salvation. I need to be rescued from the sin that uh, so easily entangles my own heart that causes me to pursue and to, to give my life to all of these other realities and to pursue lesser things. I pray, God, that you would cause us as a church uh, to treasure your gospel, that your Holy Spirit would come upon us, would empower us, would enable us, would fill us up, would mark us as a church, that we may be your witnesses here in the city of Denver and reaching out to the, this nation of America and all the way spreading out to the nations of the earth. God, we need you. We don't need just three simple steps of how to witness we need to worship you and treasure you. And we need to passionately pursue your glory among the nations. And so we just thank you for this time that you've given us to, to, to push our hearts towards that. I pray that you would work and speak to us in the name of Jesus. Amen.